This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Today we're going to be discussing human dignity and suffering. Um, specifically in regards to human dignity, we're going to talk about what the grounds are uh, for the belief that humans have inherent dignity. And if humans do have inherent dignity, what difference does it make in how we treat one another? We're also going to discuss suffering, uh, especially the challenges, the reality of suffering or evil uh, posed to belief in a perfectly good God. Uh, being a, a physician, a neurologist, I'm going to draw on patient experience uh, or my experience with patients uh, who have various neurological impairments. So oftentimes in our society, we equate dignity with functionality. Um, so sometimes that makes disabled people feel marginalized or a burden to society. Uh, so for example, somebody who has had a stroke loses their ability to communicate effectively or maybe to understand what others are saying or they develop paralysis or someone with a Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease develops uh, inability um, you know, to do certain exercises that involve reason. Um, you know, they have certain movements that they can no longer uh, do. And then folks with epilepsy, they may have intractable epilepsy and there's stigma, stigma with that. And then mental illness, of course, and this wide spectrum of neurological disease and impairment. Uh, however, as I'd like to communicate uh, clearly, hopefully, that these folks maintain their human dignity and their suffering has meaning. So I'd like to start the conversation with human dignity. So a deeper consideration of human dignity or the inherent value of human life arose during my sophomore year of college. So uh, long before becoming a physician. So it was a, uh, you know, kind of this one particular day that I reflect on. I was a, uh, I ran track and field and I got up early in the morning that day uh, to go to practice. And um, I remember the day really well. It was April. It was April 16th. And it was a really, really windy day. And it was cold. And uh, it was unusually cold for that time of year. And it was unusually windy as well. But I finished up practice, uh, got something to eat at the dining hall, realized I was running late for class. So I started to go across campus. And our campus is this uh, in the center. There was this big drill field. And on one side, we have the dorms. On the other side, we have the academic buildings. And I was crossing the field. Um, I saw a bunch of people running towards me. And um, they were yelling to me that there were, there were gunshots. And um, it was windy, so I, I couldn't hear anything. But I, I do think I could maybe hear faintly in the background that there were gunshots. And uh, they were yelling that there's a shooter on campus. So. I started running around, you know, trying to get into a building because I, I didn't know if the if the person uh, was in a building or if they were on the roof. I don't know what was going on, so I tried to get into different buildings. And um, so um, the problem was, you need this key tag to get into different buildings, and well, no one would let me in. Um, everyone was already in buildings except for me, and I remember kind of looking through this glass door at this uh, young lady who was just staring back at me, but, but wouldn't let me into the building. So I run back to the athletic facility and um, 
you know, some of my fellow teammates are there and we all, you know, hop on the, on the uh, TV and we put, you know, one of the major networks on. And of course, this is the shootings at, at Virginia Tech. And, um, you know, it's just this um, kind of unbelievable moment of uh, sadness and uh, produced a lot of sorrow. But I remember um, the most distinct thing from this that I remember, at least in my own mind, was we had this big candlelight vigil after, and we had uh, thousands of people there. And I remember being at this candlelight vigil, and we were uh, as a moment of silence that that went on for a very long time. But there was a girl behind me. Um, she was uh, on the track team, and I remember her um, just kind of like laughing and joking during this event. And right as I was about to like turn around and talk to her and say, hey, you know, you got to be respectful. You got to stop. You know, she just totally broke down, uh, started just uh, weeping uncontrollably. And uh, people kind of gathered around her to give her comfort. And um, anyways, when I reflect back on that, I think, you know, what what broke her heart? What broke all of our hearts that day? And um I think it's that she, as, as well as all of us, have this um, kind of innate uh, understanding of how precious human life is. So um, we just uh, know that human beings are just beyond compare. There's nothing else in creation that's like human beings. And this awareness of human dignity that we have in our hearts kind of gives potency to suffering. Okay. Uh, and that's where I started kind of wrestling with these ideas. What is a human person and all of this? And now I, you know, I teach medical students and they rotate with me. And um, I've been like doing this pandemic thing for the last two years. And I guess there's been this cultural shifting in America that I've been oblivious to because I've been in the hospital and um, this uh, wokeism movement. And uh, I don't say I understand it all. Uh, I'm not very I can't really speak to it all that well. But uh, some of my students, you know, they have this um, good sense that people are equal. Um, all people are equal. And I agree with them. But I often ask them, you know, what's the grounds for that belief? Why are people equal? Because they're not equal in uh, strength, they're not equal in intelligence, they're not equal in capabilities, athleticism. Um, in which way are they equal? So, um, you know, I'd like to talk about maybe the grounds for equality from a Christian perspective, because I think that gives an answer to this question. And I think the answer is uh, it's beautiful and it's compelling. I'm going to follow the work of um, the late Dominican priest, Father Albert Morgzowski. I'm not, I may not be pronouncing that correctly, so I'm just going to say Father Albert. And he's written really well on this topic and he's, he's influenced my thoughts on, on this particular section. So he starts the, um, this uh, section in this, uh, in this book here and he talks about the human person and what it means to be a human person. He starts by talking about uh, Genesis 127, which reads, so God created mankind in his own image in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So 
when we read this, we see that both men and women alike are created in the image of God. The scripture actually doesn't tell us what this means. It doesn't actually tell us what it means to be created in the image of God. So we often turn to theological or philosophical considerations to try to make sense of this. There's a lot of different views on what it means to be made in, in the image of God. So some people think that it's righteousness, that uh, pre-lapsarian, so before the fall, uh, people were, we were righteous. Um, and then uh, the fall occurred, and then post-lapsarian, uh, we lose our righteousness, and we're no longer created in the image of God. But anyone that takes the Bible seriously, I think we'll see that's not true. So Genesis 9, 6 clearly states that we're still made in the image of God. Some people have a functional view of being made in the image of God. It goes something like, uh, we're God's representatives, uh, and we govern his creation. Uh, so we kind of represent God. We represent the king. And uh, I think that's, that may be true. Uh, some people think it's relational or that we have free will or a number of other reasons. But one has to take a step back and say, okay, those things are true, except for the righteousness thing. Um, you know, I don't... But uh, one has to kind of step back and think about that and say, well, what, how do we have these capacities in the first place to be able to be God's representatives or to be relational or to have freedom of the will? And the classical answer to this is that we have these capacities in light of having a rational soul. And it's our rational soul that we are especially made in the image of God. And this would be consistent with the thoughts of St. Augustine, Boethius, and St. Thomas Aquinas, to name a few. Augustine says, uh, man's excellence consists in the fact that God made him in his own image by giving him a rational soul, which raises him above the beasts of the field. Uh, now, perhaps, uh, you know, someone hears this talk from the uh, American Academy of Neurology or something. They say, oh, I can't believe it. You guys got to hear it. there's still a neurologist who believes that people have a soul. Uh, this, this may be mind blowing. So uh, hasn't neuroscience uh, done away with the soul, you know? Um, the argument runs something like, well, you know, neuroscience really took off in the 19th century. Um, we discovered that motors, you know, motor function and sensory function and language, all these things reside within the brain. And we even found that uh, personality maybe resides in the frontal lobe. Okay. Uh, and then the 20th century, we've learned that memory localizes to specific areas within the temporal lobe. And vision localizes to certain areas in the occipital lobes, okay? Um, so uh, then in the 21st century, you jump ahead and now we've kind of with functional MRIs and various other technologies, we've localized mental states like sensations, emotions, beliefs, and thoughts that those localize to specific brain regions as well. In fact, some people have even claimed, I've been writing a letter to the editor of one journal, that um, there's even areas in our brain that are responsible or the cause of religious belief. And scientists have uh, identified these areas. Um, I think it's quite silly, but I won't get into it. Um, but it's claimed that neuroscience has closed the gap on psychological attributes that we have once ascribed to an immaterial mind or soul. And these attributes can now be ascribed to the brain. This process uh, adopts a Cartesian framework Okay, and it denies the immaterial aspect of the Cartesian framework. So there's this material body and there's this immaterial uh, soul, right? 
But scientists say, well, the immaterial body or the material body explains everything we need to know. So the other half of it is superfluous. So we can just get rid of it, right? Occam's razor. Um, so it kind of leaves behind this mechanistic view of the human person, where it's called physicalism, that we're just purely physical uh, beings. Okay. And of course, neurologists note that whenever there's brain damage, there's also mind damage. So it fits well with this theory that we're just our brains, perhaps. Okay. But the mind really is just the, you know, 3.3 pound organ between our ears. Okay. I'm not going to get too into picking apart this view because, uh, well, there's a lot of folks from the Thomistic Institute that have spoken on this, uh, including myself. And, um, but I'll just say maybe a couple of brief things here. First, uh, it commits what's called the mereological fallacy in which attributes that can only be intelligently applied to the whole are erroneously ascribed to a part, okay? The second is um, that if someone's purely material, then they should have the properties of matter. But uh, human beings uh, have properties that are not shared by matter. So two things can't be identical if they don't share the same properties, okay? Uh, happy to go more into that in the Q&A, but I actually don't think that this kind of objection from neuroscience is any good, okay? And the last thing is Aristotle and Aquinas, uh, when they're talking about the soul, they're not saying that it's a mind. Aquinas and Aristotle think something very different about the soul, okay? I'm gonna talk about how this has to do with patient care too, okay? So. Uh, Aquinas and Aristotle, they held a different view of the soul. Uh, and indeed, they held a very different view of the philosophy of nature in general. First, uh, the soul is not synonymous with mind. It is not a separate immaterial substance mysteriously interacting with the material body. It's not a byproduct or an emergent entity that arises from the complexity of the brain. The human person is one substance composed of matter and form. It's called soul. Okay. The soul, according to Aquinas, is the first principle in life and those things that live. So if you think about the symbolic language in Genesis 2.7, it says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The soul is that which animates a living thing, and all living things have a soul. Okay, according to Aquinas and Aristotle, it's that which makes a thing alive. Further, the soul is that which directs and forms and unifies the matter of a living thing to become that which it's intended to be. But humans are unique in that we have a rational soul, which gives us the capacity to reason and will. Aquinas argues that the intellect and the will are immaterial. Okay, and these capacities designate us as being created in the image of God. So what implications does this have uh, for me as a physician and how I treat people? It has a lot of implications. So that which is immaterial uh, cannot be physically corrupted. It doesn't have parts, okay? And thus it survives the death of the body. And this is great news to a physician, okay? Um, physical corruption is inevitable. Our bodies fall apart. And there's limits what I can do as a physician to help some people in a physical sense, right? I mean. Uh, there's a lot of terrible uh, diseases, neurodegenerative diseases in neurology, okay? Um, but this truth reminds me that God's, that uh, through God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, I can still bring about healing for a person, 
I had this one woman who, who had a terminal illness and she had suffered prior to that for years uh, with depression. And she, she was Catholic, but she stopped going to mass decades ago. You know, she had kind of given up on, on it. And, um, but she only had a certain amount of time left. And I didn't know how much time. I actually thought it was gonna be longer than it was. I thought maybe she had another year or two, but it turns out she only had another six months. And so I gave my talk. Um, I give a talk to these, to these patients to try to encourage them. And I said, look, you, you can't do the things that you physically once could do. Okay, you're limited. Uh, but I know that you are Catholic and you say that you still believe uh, the, the truth of the Catholic faith, the truth of Christianity, the truth of Jesus. Uh, you still, to the full extent, can work on trying to become a saint. So this is a talk I give to people. And um, I don't know if anyone listens to it, um, but I say, you know, there's still an opportunity that thing for which you are created, you still have an opportunity to pursue our highest end. So, um, so I saw her in clinic and then she died before the next follow-up. I, you know, I didn't know what happened. But about a month after her daughter wrote me a letter and she said, you know, I wanna appreciate what you did for my mom. You know, she went back to mass and she joined a woman's prayer group. And she started praying, you know, with these women. And the last six months of her life were the most meaningful of her entire life. Okay, so people have a soul. Now, sometimes people are tempted due to suffering to cut their life short, okay, um, through different means. But I just say that sometimes, unexpectedly, the moments in life where we think there'll be no meaning sometimes have the greatest meaning. Okay, so the second thing, uh, you know, a human um, may not display rationality. So I say people have a rational soul. What does that mean if they don't display rationality that they don't have a rational soul anymore? Answer is no, that's not it. Okay, just by being a human, by definition, you have a rational soul. Now, um, sometimes certain potentials of this rational soul cannot be actualized due to the person's physical condition. Okay, so certain potentials that we have, but they can't be actualized because of damage to the brain or perhaps a brain that has not matured properly. Okay, so I had this uh, another patient, a woman, um, and she had uh, Alzheimer's disease and it was in its advanced stages. And she couldn't really remember anything. I mean, she had no short term memory. Uh, if I said something and asked her 30 seconds later, I gave her five words to remember, I'd get zero of them back. Okay. But, you know, when she would come to me, she had this delusion that I impregnated her daughter. And um, so she would uh, come to the office and she would just scream at me for like 30 minutes, you know, and just yell at me about uh, this, this baby and that I'm not taking care of the baby. And, uh, you know, I would just have to sit there and I'd listen to this and I didn't know what to say. Uh, you know, I'll take good care of the baby, you know. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. I tried to convince her it's not true. Uh, so, you know, sometimes with dementia, people say, you know, this, uh, the person's kind of lost their mind, okay? They're, uh, you know, I married this person, but this isn't the same person that I married, okay? But it's important to know that the soul is not the mind. Just because someone can't display rationality doesn't mean that they don't still have a soul, 
the soul is that which gives life, okay? The next um, realization is that, you know, being created in the image of God, uh, we have this uh, inherent dignity. And this inherent dignity, it transcends race, religion, socioeconomic status, intelligence, gender, age, and it even goes beyond that. So it, it transcends even the lifespan of the person. So even in the earliest stages of human life, an embryo still has a rational soul and is still created in the image of God, okay? And at the end of life as well, the person still has a rational soul, even if they're losing their capacities, they're still created in the image of God. So we have respect for all of human life, okay? So we've established human dignity. In having a rational soul, we're especially created in the Imago Dei. And this informs our ethics. That is how we treat other people, especially those who suffer. So carrying in mind this lofty view of the human person, we now face the reality that such exalted beings suffer. So one of the worst parts of my job is that I uh, declare brain death, uh, unfortunately on a regular basis. And um, so I come in on Monday morning and we get these, um, we have an app on our phone and a consult will come through, I'm a consultant. So I'll get a consult in the, in the ICU or in the emergency department. And it will say, uh, you know, I don't know, something like 38 year old woman consult for declaring brain death. And, um, you know, it's horrible. Um, you know, Aquinas says that the soul uh, or the intellectual, you know, aspect of the soul must be immaterial. And he gives arguments for this. But it also, uh, like I said, in the Virginia Tech story, it uh, allows for us to contemplate universals, moral truths, relations between people. So when I see a patient, it's not just a, this body there. No, no, this is someone's grandmother or this is someone's daughter or husband or it's somebody's son. And this ability that humans have to contemplate universals and relations, again, it kind of gives this gravity or potency to suffering that otherwise wouldn't be there, okay? And it's a wonderful gift to have the intellect and all of this, but it comes with a deep realization of suffering as well, okay? Um, and this uh, problem is obvious for family members, but I'd like to focus a little bit on my colleagues, physicians, because it's been a rough two years for physicians and nurses and providers in general, people at the bedside. It's been a rough couple of years. So I'd like to maybe focus on them a little bit. The reason is, is because physicians in particular are just at a higher risk of existential crisis. Uh, in my opinion, the suicide rates for physicians are drastically higher than that of the general population, okay? So um, kind of by way of example, so physicians experience uh, alarm fatigue, okay? Alarm fatigue, I have alarm fatigue. So all day in the hospital, we hear alarms, codes, things going off, beeping, okay? And you hear it all day, so you just kind of like, it just doesn't affect you very much anymore. So no, a few weeks ago, I was um, down in the physician's lounge and um, I was eating lunch and a code black went off. And I was like, what in the world is a code black? And we have this uh, you know, badge. And I looked at the back of the badge and it was a, it was a bomb threat. 
And um, so I'm like, you know, oh, man, I got to I'm gonna eat my lunch outside, guys. Um, but nobody flinched. I mean, nobody moved. Everyone just kept eating. And I think it even I think they even said overhead, this is not a drill. Um, no one moved, you know. Um, so I think uh, in my estimation, uh, one may think that the constant witness to suffering uh, may be like alarm fatigue, that it no longer affects the physician. But I think that this is wrong. Um, I think it has a profound cumulative effect, uh, even if it's subconscious, okay? So we always say that Christians, you know, we appreciate the intelligibility and order in the world. Um, Aquinas says that all things act towards an end, including things that lack intelligence. But that which lacks intelligence cannot act towards an end unless directed by something with intelligence, like an arrow is directed at its target by an archer. And this observation of intelligibility in the world, that all things are acting to, to an end, even things without intelligence, but this points to a divine intellect giving order to the world and giving to each natural body existence and essence so it can act towards a particular end, okay? But the hospital sometimes just doesn't seem that way. You know, um, children come into the world with random genetic mutations. The suffering of my patients often seem random and pointless. And all of the suffering appears uh, maybe to physicians over a period of time to be inconsistent with a perfectly good and all-powerful God. So this is a classic problem. It's not just for philosophers. I think this uh, affects all of us. Maybe we haven't formed the syllogisms uh, or the syllogism uh, in our mind, but it runs something like this. Uh, you know, Christians say that God is perfectly good, so he'd eliminate evil as far as he could. Further, God's all powerful, he's omnipotent, and there are no limits to what an omnipotent being can do. But now a problem arises. In God's goodness, he desires to eliminate evil, and in his power, he can do so. So therefore, evil shouldn't exist, yet it does. So it seems a perfectly good and omnipotent God just doesn't exist. And um, this would be in line with like the ancient philosopher Epicurus. Uh, and it would also be uh, in line with the more recent philosopher J.L. Mackey, who formulated the argument in that manner. Okay, what you'll find if you study philosophy at all is there's no philosophy which you cannot find in uh, an ancient Greek philosopher, okay? They're all there. Like there is probably a really like, uh, well, we're gonna discover that there is one of these philosophers that were, that was like really woke, you know, as a woke ancient Greek philosopher somewhere. We're gonna, we're gonna find that in the writings, okay? All right. So uh, at first glance, this seems like a good argument. However, there, there are two problems with the argument. Okay, and here I follow the, uh, the work of, of uh, the great philosopher and very good person, Ed Fazer. And uh, this is from uh, his book here, uh, Five Proofs of the Existence of God. And he talks about the problem of evil, the logical problem of evil. So I'm going to discuss that, many of the points that he makes. So the first error that he points out is that it's not correct to say that there are no limits to what an omnipotent being can do. 
Okay. God can only do what's consistent with his nature. So carrying out logical impossibilities, uh, such as making a four-sided triangle or making four plus four equals five, it's just nonsense, which is not an attribute of God. Now, it so happens that certain goods cannot logically obtain without certain evils. And uh, Professor Fazer, he gives several examples. So uh, forgiveness uh, couldn't exist without wrongdoing. Courage couldn't exist without danger. Compassion couldn't exist without suffering. And sacrifice couldn't exist without a loss of some good. And on and on and on. You can come up with all of these virtues that just wouldn't exist if the evil didn't exist. Okay. And this leads to the second error. God may not eliminate evil as far as he can if he has sufficient reasons to permit evil, such as bringing about a greater good, such as forgiveness, courage, compassion, sacrifice, to name a few. So in creating free creatures, uh, such evils come about. But God in his goodness and power brings about a greater good that could not logically obtain were it not for those evils. And that is omnipotence. And that is goodness. And here are some quotes. Um, so from St. Augustine, since God is the highest good, he would not allow any evil to exist in his works unless, in, unless his omnipotence and goodness were such as to bring good even out of evil. If we turn to St. Thomas Aquinas, this is part of the infinite goodness of God that he should allow evil to exist and out of it produce good. This is also the biblical answer. So if you uh, have read the wonderful story in Genesis of, um, of Joseph, right? Joseph is uh, thrown into, uh, sold into slavery by, by his brothers, right? And um, at the very end of the story, when his, you know, his brothers are trembling before him and something's bad is gonna happen to him, you know, he essentially says something like, don't, don't worry. What you intended against me uh, or, or you intended evil against me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, okay? Uh, but perhaps one will object further. Uh, one may object that if God directs all evil towards a greater good, then there would be no pointless evil, okay? And this would be in line with what's called the evidential problem of evil. That's put forth by um, William Rowe. And um, Fazer talks about that as well, but just to be you know, good and balanced, I uh, found another uh, group of philosophers as well, two evangelical philosophers, uh, Stephen Cohen and James uh, Spiegel, and a good uh, text here, The Love of Wisdom, A Christian Introduction to Philosophy. And uh, they formulate it uh, after the work of Daniel Howard Snyder, who's another philosopher. And uh, it runs like this. If God exists, there would be no pointless evil. There is pointless evil. Therefore, God does not exist. Uh, premise one seems true to me, right? That was the answer to the logical problem of evil, that God directs or points uh, all evil towards a greater good. Okay? So there shouldn't be pointless evil. Um, that, that seems obvious to me. Uh, premise two uh, is the one that I think we have to object to, that there is pointless evil, okay? I think uh, as Christians, we, can't, we cannot believe that there's pointless evil, okay? So that the conclusion won't follow, therefore God does not exist, okay? Uh, so William Rowe gives an example. He says, imagine 
that there's a fawn and it's in the forest and there's a forest fire and a tree falls or whatever and it's trapped. And uh, anyways, it lays there in agony for days and then dies, okay? And to William Rowe, he says, there's just no conceivable greater good that could possibly come from this situation where God could have achieved the same good outcome, but through less harsh means. So um, this one I relate to much more, right? So I'll give another patient example. There's a terrible form of intractable epilepsy called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, okay? And um, I had a, or I have a patient, she's lovely. Um, but she, when I first started seeing her, she was having over a hundred seizures a day, okay? Um, several hundred seizures a day, I'd say. And um, she's doing quite a bit better now, you know? Uh, we have her on, on good medicines and, um, you know, she now only has seizures related to her um, menstrual cycle or when she's constipated. Um, so she's doing quite a bit better. That's just kind of a side note, but you think about something like that. Say she has 107 seizures in a day. Well, you know, couldn't God just have permitted 97 of them and still achieve the same effect? Doesn't it seem that uh, maybe 10 of them or so uh, are unnecessary? It's an unnecessary evil, it's pointless. Um, so the argument's laid out like this. So uh, Cowan, uh, Cohen and Spiegel laid out this way. I cannot see an X, therefore there is not an X. In other words, I cannot see a reason for this suffering, therefore there is no reason for this suffering. So I'll give an example, okay? Um, let's say my daughter, she asked me, uh, dad, can you get me the cereal out of the cupboard? And uh, the cereal is always in the cupboard, but I open up the, you know, I open up, I look in, there's no cereal in the cupboard, okay? Well, if I look in and don't see anything, it's safe for me to assume that there's no cereal in the cupboard. I don't see it, therefore it's not there, okay? But is this, is this always a good inference, right? Uh, um, let's try another one. Let's say my daughter says, uh, Dad, you know, there's really no good reason for me to do my homework or my chores. Therefore, there is no good reason. Well, you know, of course not, you know, uh, just because her, her kind of limited uh, cognition, she just can't arrive at the purpose of the thing, right? So again, with patients, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an adult neurologist, but um, I have done some procedures on children when they're, when no one else can help these kids or something, I'll say, I'll do it, you know, I'll, I'll try to help. Um, so uh, I do these tests sometimes called EMG nerve conduction studies where you stimulate nerves with electrical currents and it hurts. Uh, and then there's an EMG component where you have a, an acupuncture sized needle that you put in the muscles and you're, you're testing amplitude and velocity and waveforms and all of these things, but it hurts, it's very painful. And I've had to do this on young children before to diagnose things like Guillain-Barre syndrome or chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, things like this. And um, you know, there's just no way that I'm going to, or their parents are gonna be able to explain to this poor child what the purpose is for this suffering that I have to put them through, right? The parents know, I know, but there's no way that the child's going to know, okay? There's no way that the child's going to know, okay? The adult just has a greater capacity to reason than the child does just by nature, okay? And that brings me to my first point, okay? We see there's a knowledge gap between a child 
and an adult. I call that an epistemic gap, okay? The child is unaware of the greater good, but the parent whose knowledge transcends that of the child knows the greater good, okay? Like there being an epistemic gap between our understanding and the child's understanding, okay? There's an infinite epistemic gap between our knowledge and God's knowledge, right? So God may well have a greater good in mind, even if we cannot fathom one. And that's exactly what scripture tells us. Isaiah 55, nine, as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So let's look back at our two uh, examples, okay? So the girl with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and the poor fawn trapped in the forest fire, okay? Who suffers in agony for days. Um, is it really true that we can't perceive any good here, right? I'm not saying that the, that, uh, you know, the suffering outweighs the good here, but we can at least see some good in this, right? So let's say the fire. Well, it's good for the forest. It helps regenerate the forest. The fawn, uh, it's death, you know, is good for the birds and the insects and the animals that need that to survive. Um, it um, uh, makes for good compost. I don't mean to be insensitive to the deer. Um, but there are some goods. I'm not saying those goods outweigh the bad. I'm just saying there are some goods that come about through it. And of course, in creating finite creatures that have competing goods, this is just a natural consequence, right? What's, I don't know, I think Aquinas says something like, what's good for the lion is, is bad for the donkey, right? Lions need meat to live. And well, donkeys are a uh, prey uh, for the lion, okay? So what's good for the lion bad for the donkey, okay? Um, so, you know, you can already see some goods coming from this, okay? Now, God just could maybe not create animals, okay? But uh, for me, being always seems better than non-being, even if the animal suffers, okay? How about the patient with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome? Um, so, she can't verbally communicate with, uh, she can't use words, but her seizures that she has, well, it indicates to her parents something's wrong, okay? She only has seizures as a reaction to something like she's starting her period or uh, she's constipated. And these very brief myoclonic seizures, which aren't really doing significant harm to her, is letting her parents know that she's in need so that they can care for her. Now, in caring for her, her parents are just become I mean, they've become saints. Um, you know, they just have been taking care of her so well and they're just beautiful people. And the patient is just beautiful. I mean, she's, she's just lovely. Every time she comes to the office, I mean, just, it makes all of our days better. When we see her on the schedule, everyone gets excited. We love her, okay? So she, she just kind of radiates um, Christ's um, kind of love towards it. It's, she's just a wonderful person, okay? So when we do seek, we often find glimpses of God's higher way, but the fullness of his plan is beyond our comprehension, okay? So some greater good is being achieved. I can't prove that with the fawn or, or with the patient with Lennox. I can't prove that, okay? But certainly it's logically possible and we trust that God's a good God, okay? And this is the answer that Job receives, right? So it's this whole agony and all these terrible things happen to Job. But what does God say? You know, where were you when I created, you know, 
and, and on and on. I think it's the longest monologue in scripture from God, right? Giving an answer to this. Beautiful answer. And Job was okay. Job said, okay, okay, that's right, you're God. Okay, the second point is there's no reason to think that the greater good needs to be achieved in this life because we have eternal souls. In principle, infinite goodness in eternity will outweigh our finite sufferings on earth. Let's allow Paul and, and uh, you know, St. Paul in Romans 8.18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Okay, so having this eternal perspective. Okay. Last, uh, we already know that God exists. Okay, so some people think that suffering is the most like ontologically basic starting point of our human existence, right? But I can only suffer because I exist. And I can only exist because something keeps me in existence. Something created us. Something has created contingent beings. Um, and existence is ultimately borrowed from something that has existence within its own nature, God. Okay, So that's more ontologically basic than the fact that I suffer. Okay, So we already know that God exists. You don't need to have some fancy intellectual argument for it either. I mean, patients just, when I talk to them about their lives, they just tell me all the wonderful things that God has done for them in their lives. And they trust God and they know God and they love God. And that's enough for them when they're suffering. They know through having a relationship with God over decades that their whole life has had meaning. And they've seen God work through their lives. And they, they, they just know, they trust that God is working through their suffering as well. Okay. So in summary, uh, we as healthcare providers, we can hold fast to our faith. And we can trust that God is making something beautiful, even out of our suffering. Um, so I'll just kind of close with this. I, like I said, I, you know, I just finished up seven days in the hospital. And uh, so I sit here and I'm actually still in my office. Um, so I'm looking out and uh, the, the hospital's right there. It's just uh, 10 stories and patient rooms. And uh, I, I saw a lot over this last week. You know, I've had, um, I've diagnosed, managed and treated uh, strokes, hemorrhages, neurodegenerative conditions, infections of the central nervous system, uh, and, and many more things. Uh, this last week, I've had two patients die, um, one from a, a large hemorrhage that we just couldn't do anything about, uh, another from a cardiac arrest. Uh, and I have another patient that's uh, on their way to hospice, okay? Uh, now, although there's uh, many people being healed, from various afflictions in the hospital. Uh, there are many people who are suffering over there. And uh, I work at a Catholic hospital. So in each room in our hospital, there's a cross. And on each cross, uh, our Lord is on there, okay? And, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I reflect on this a lot. Um, I don't know the depth of the meaning that this has. Uh, you know, but maybe I can just like say a few things about it when I kind of look at it, when I look at the cross and I look at our savior on the cross, uh, you know, it, it reminds me that God is not unaware of our suffering. Okay. We're not alone in our suffering. Okay. He promises to never abandon us. And that includes in our suffering. And we hear in the gospel of St. John that the word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. So God becomes man. You know, I spoke about humans being uh, made in the image of God. But St. Thomas reminds us that we're an imperfect image, which doesn't in any way take away our dignity. But we're not equal to that which we're in the image of, God. However, Christ is the image of the invisible God, as they say in Colossians. And he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. as what is said in uh, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 1.3. Uh, we're called also to conform to the image of Christ, to follow him, to pick up our cross. And that includes following him in suffering. Okay. We discussed uh, how God permits evil. And in his goodness and omnipotence, he brings about a greater good. But is the cross not the greatest archetype for this truth? The greatest evil, not just the killing of an innocent man, but the son of God, not just in any way, but on the cross. This greatest evil we call Good Friday because from it comes the greatest good, the redemption of mankind. The cross reminds us that the greater evil that, um, sorry, the cross reminds us that if the greatest evil can be directed to the greatest good, lesser evils and our own suffering can be directed to a greater good as well. Okay, and I'll close with kind of the uh, last thing from, from Romans uh, 8, 38 uh, through 39. Okay, and this is uh, St. Paul. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.